we're going to continue our study here in the book of Philippians. Um, last two weeks we did uh, the introduction, we did verses 1 and 2, we went into some of the context, and then last week we went from verses 3 through verse 5. And this morning we're going to continue on a rapid pace, racing through Philippians, and we will get all the way through the end of verse 6. So we will complete, we will complete the one verse. Um, I, I closed with it last week because I absolutely love this verse, but also it is something that is so rich that we can look to in other texts, other chapters, other books of the Bible and see holistically, quite simply, the truth that God will always complete what he begins. God completes the things that he begins. Um, these are things that we're going to look at a few different texts. We're not going to exactly just expound upon one particular passage. We're going to be in different places here. Um, but I want us to see this truth that God is bringing to completion the things which he has already begun. If you look back to uh, the first week and talking about the introduction to Philippians, we looked at it and said that this is primarily a book with a central theme of what? Start, three letters starts with a J. Anybody remember? Joy. Okay. This is a book of joy. This is a happy, rejoicing, joyful book. This letter that Paul is writing to the Philippians, it is one grounded and based upon joy. And I'm going to continue to do it probably each and every week. There is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is found in your circumstances where joy is everlasting. The reason that's so important is because circumstances are subject to change, as many of us know. Um, I mentioned last week that sometimes we can come into a certain um, area of our lives, we can come into the workplace, we can wake up unhappy, we can go to work upset because of the drive there, it wasn't everything that we wanted it to be. We can even come to church on a Sunday upset or not happy because maybe the roads weren't great, maybe we were late getting there. Any of you with small children like Brittany and I have, they are not exactly the most prompt and obedient little creatures, Right? So depending on the situation, you could have come in this morning far less happy than you were yesterday. But the one thing that should always be present for the Christian is this, this foundational aspect of joy. Um, turn over to Psalm chapter 42. Again, we're going to bounce around in some different places um, because I think the greatest thing that I can do here is to show you from the whole of Scripture what it is that this joy is to be and how we are to understand what it is that Paul is writing. But in Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 through 5, this is David writing. He has endured some rough circumstances. He has been exiled. He is removed from certain fellowship. He is removed from things that he has enjoyed. And now we see him dealing with his, the human aspects here of these emotions and of his happiness. So in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 5, he says, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. 
So as we see oftentimes in the Psalms, we see the, the psalmist writing these things and we see an interplay of the human emotions, right? We don't always just see nothing but cheerful, um, happy praise. We see them wrestling at times, whether it is David or even as we saw in Ecclesiastes of, of the writer saying, if this is all that there is, there is nothing that has meaning. There are times when circumstances are going to come our way and we will absolutely struggle with retaining happiness because our circumstances seem to be this tide after tide, right? The moment you get back up on the surfboard, another wave comes in, knocks you right down. You conquer the next wave, another one comes in and hits you immediately again. This is the reality of life. This is the reality of circumstances, whether they be relational, emotional, uh, physical, financial, whatever the case may be. It seems to be never-ending, and there's always something else coming around. And so David has been removed from a fellowship. He's no longer doing the things that he had always been doing. And you see in verse 5, he asks his soul, why does he feel like this? How many of you have ever had to ask yourself, why do I feel this way? Soul, why are you feeling like this? Because almost you know better. You know that this should not be the case. You know that there's something true. Why then do I continue to feel this way and to struggle? So he goes back and forth. He's going up and down. And then we see him at the end of Psalm 43 in verse 5. He asks this question yet again. We see him trying to move past his circumstance to get back to his joy, to move just from being unhappy to reminding himself of the joy. And then he does this in verse 5. He says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So in the answer to why, do I, why am I doing this? Why, why is my soul cast down? Why is my heart quieted? And he reminds himself yet again, kind of a, a kick in the butt for himself, for his soul of, Hope in God. He is the one, he is the health of my countenance, and he is my God. The reason that Philippians is a book of joy is because while in chains, while Paul is in prison, chained to a soldier, he is still able to rejoice in who God is, even though I'm sure he was not very happy at the time. The joy never left him, even though the circumstance was very trying. And so now flip back over to Philippians, and we see him writing here in verse 6. Paul writes to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that that you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. We thank you that you have revealed yourself not only in creation, but through your word. And we are incredibly thankful this morning that we can come together as your church to be able to praise you for your holiness and for your goodness to us and to open up your word and to simply see this truth that you will complete what it is that you begin. God, we thank you for the incredible security, the incredible hope, and the incredible thankfulness that we receive as we learn more about you and know all that you have done. God, I pray this morning that we would see you uh, rightly in the way that you deserve to be seen and that you would receive all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So again, we're only going to be looking here at this one verse, but if you're looking at it there, it should be a verse which brings an incredible amount of hope, an incredible amount of joy, an incredible amount of, of resolve for the Christian, of understanding God will bring to completion the things which he does begin. Um, looking back at the previous couple verses, we see Paul rejoicing in a couple things. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Right? He was thankful to God when he was remembering the Philippians because of all that they had done. They had partnered with him in, um, financially as well as in prayers for his ministry. They had went far above and beyond what they were called to do. And he was thankful for them. And notice this, he's thankful upon remembering them. Um, many of us know people or know groups of people that when we think upon them, when we remember them, we are not immediately thankful, right? I don't, I don't think I'm going to, I'm saying anything that is uh, exclusive to one or two people, that we think about certain people, individuals, groups, anything that has happened in the past, and we're not immediately joyful for. But here we're seeing Paul say, I am thankful to God when I remember you. This is a, a joy which produces a thanks upon remembering somebody. The joyful person is one who essentially remembers a lot of the good things and is very forgetful regarding the bad. Now let's look at our own lives. How would we feel if every person that we have ever met, come in contact with, anybody that we care about, only remembers the things that were bad? Only remembers the things that we really wish that they didn't remember? the things that we ourselves have even tried to forget at times. You know, this is the, the understanding here of joy and understanding what true biblical joy is. It's founded upon the truth that we have been forgiven of sins. God does not sit there and say, yes, Christian, you rejoice in the salvation I've given you, but do you remember all of the bad things that you've done? Do you remember this heavy weight that you need to constantly be reminded of? It's not as if God has this chalkboard and he keeps popping up into your room every morning and says, here's your list of sins, don't ever forget it. Right? That's an incredible burdensome thing that would be to carry around this understanding of such guilt. But he is thankful to them as he remembers them. What an incredible commendation of the people and the ministry that they had partnered with Paul in, that he is thankful upon remembering them. Likewise, also in every prayer for them, making a request with joy. He rejoiced in his prayers for them as well, rejoicing in thanksgiving and prayers. Do you think that he knew that they too would be praying for him? What, what joy comes upon you when you hear that someone has been praying for you? Something that's even unprovoked. A person comes and says, hey, I've, I don't really know why, but you've been on my heart a lot this week. So I spent a lot of time praying for you. I don't know what's going on, but just know that I prayed for you a lot. Do you think that's encouraging or very discouraging? Encouraging, right? I'm giving simple questions. Feel confident, right? It's an incredibly encouraging thing because usually that comes at a time where you're going, man, I absolutely needed to know that. And that's why church is not a one-person thing, right? Church is not meant to be an individual aspect to where it's a bunch of individuals coming and sitting together, remaining an individual isolated to your chair, right? This is supposed to be a community. It's supposed to be a fellowship, a partnership in all of these things. So he's talking, he's rejoicing in the positive memories and prayers for others, joy in their partnership there in verse 5. And the partnership or the fellowship there being the word koinonia and understanding this familial aspect. Some of us understand family 
far better than others. Um, culturally, Americans don't really understand family to the same extent as many other cultures, to where the understanding of, no, no, I have my, my home, it's me, my spouse, my kids, that's it. And I don't want to know any neighbors. I don't want to know anybody else. I'm going to constantly lock the doors. I'm going to pretend I'm not home. All of those different things. But in many other cultures, it's a family aspect to where time isn't going to be important. Family is more important. You have two, three generations all living together. And this is the culture in which they lived of a family being together in fellowship. And Paul was delighted to be a part of the fellowship. So what is the fellowship that we as Christians are to rejoice in. What is that fellowship that we have? It's the church, right? To rejoice. Do you rejoice in the fellowship of the church, in the fellowship of other Christians? Is it something that brings you great amounts of joy, great delights? Because here we see Paul writing to these different churches, rejoicing for their fellowship. Did he know each of them by name? Likely no. Did he know everybody's family? Probably not. But there was the unique thing, this tie that was keeping them bonded together, which was their fellowship in Christ. And so here in verse 6, he's saying, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here this word confident is meaning to be sure, persuaded, or convinced. I mean, this is where confident really does mean confident. This is not a wavering understanding, a faith which is shaky, which is uncertain, as if Paul is saying, I really hope that this thing I'm going to tell you, I really hope it's true. So many times in our lives when we look at hope or confidence, we say, we exert confidence, but it's really a lot shakier than we'd like to admit. Um, I'm confident my car will start in the morning. Yeah, but will it? Some of you are like, hey, I don't think my car is going to start ever. And when it does, just rejoice, right? I understand. This is true, absolute confidence, right? Being sure, being persuaded, being convinced, which means there is an incredible amount of evidence to support what he is going to say here. And this is why the Christian's hope is not the hope that we commonly think of, where hope is more of a wishful thinking, right? We talk about hope um, culturally and outside of what biblical hope is. People say, well, I really hope, and they fill in the blank, right? I really hope that this person is there, or I really hope that this happens. For many people, it's, I really hope I win the lottery. Is that anything to be confident, to be sure, to be persuaded of? If anything, anybody who's ever been in math will understand you have no reason to be convinced that you will ever win that thing. Hope is so much more than just wishful thinking. This is not a person who has believed upon Christ and on their deathbed and looking, anticipating their arrival into heaven is saying, I really just hope that everything I've believed is true because I'm not really certain. This is the absolute confidence, the persuadedness, this being convinced that I am going to enter into the gates of heaven and see my Lord, and I am rejoicing in that. This is far different than I really hope everything I've dedicated my life to is true. There is so much more to this hope and to this being confident and to being convinced. 
This word for began here is used two different times in the New Testament, obviously once here, another in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, always in reference to salvation. It's These two different times, it's used in reference to salvation. He's writing to them saying, I am confident, I am persuaded, I am convinced, and I am sure that God who has begun a good work in you, beginning the good work of salvation, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. There is an incredible amount of hope, rejoicing, certainty, um, convincingness here that takes place for the Christian of knowing, man, if I've been saved by Christ, by grace through faith, I have nothing but confidence that it will absolutely be made perfect in the end. He will complete what it is that he has started. There's, there's no, um, God is making paintings and says, oh, I'm running out of time. I guess I have to change my plans here so I can't finish something. You know, I always make fun of us for starting projects and never being able to finish them, right? This is not, I have this great plan for the garage. I'm going to do all of these things. And then two days later, uh, well, don't really have time to do that anymore. And now you have a half-finished garage, right? I know none of you would ever do that. <laughs> He has confidence, he is persuaded, he is absolutely certain that these things are going to be completed. How many of you are driven absolutely mad by things being left incomplete? We'll go show of hands here. I like participation. Okay, some of you are absolutely lying, okay, because I know you. Okay, right? It, it drives some of us absolutely crazy, this of being incomplete. I'm the kind of person that likes to go pretty far on one thing, then move to the next and do something here, and kind of have like four or five different things juggling around. It all gets done. It's just maybe a little more stressful along the way. And some of you are probably very stressed out upon hearing that as well. But why is it that he has absolute confidence and certainty that these things will be made complete is because he understands who started it in the first place. He knows who is bringing it from the very beginning. We do not all have confidence in ourselves or in one another that we will always finish what we have promised to complete. And now we're going to look at a couple different verses here. Look at John chapter 1, verse 12. Here in this incredible prologue to the book of John, the first 18 verses, something that I think is um, important to read every few days, just a reminder of so many of these things. But he says here in verse 12, John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. At salvation, God is the one who gives us the power to be called a son of God, to be adopted. This is not something where we just enter into it all of ourselves. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So God is the one who has given the power to be called a son of God, to, be en to enter into the, the family of God, to be a child of God. And then here in Acts, as these conversations are going, God has given to the Gentiles repentance unto life. He has granted them the repentance so that they are able to repent, to come to Christ in salvation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
Verses 13 and 14, he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the beginning, God hath chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. Paul was certain that God who began this work would bring it to completion. These are the things that the Christian looks forward to of knowing that there is no start and stop. It's not this changing of plans. It's not as if God looks upon the actions that man engages in and says, oh, well, he's doing this now or she's doing this. I'm going to have to alter what it is that I'm desiring to do. Many of us, the way that we interact with one another, the way our, our beliefs change based on what we know often, right? The way that we believe things can change based on more information. So as information comes in, we start to adjust our beliefs. We start to reconcile different things. How many, how many centuries did people believe things that scientifically we now know are not true? An incredible amount of things, right? The idea that, you know, if you're sick, you could just you would cut yourself and you would bleed out all the sickness. Okay? You can understand a little bit of that. But now what happens if you don't have any blood? Yeah, you're gonna die, right? We understand you need blood. So any of you that were not certain of that, now be convinced you need to keep all of your blood inside. Okay? So go ahead and do that. But this is what it is that we see, is that beliefs are subject to change based on knowing things. The way that we interact with one another, the decisions and the choices we make, are heavily based on information that we have. Absolutely, 100%. This is why, for many of you, you live differently now than you did 20 years ago. You know more things. You've changed the way that you've lived. Maybe things that you did in the past, you now know those were not good for you, and you have altered that. A belief that you had, and anything has changed as more information has come in. Does God ever gain information? Does he have to learn anything? Is it as if God has set out to set forth a purpose or a will, and then says, well, I didn't know this was going to happen, or I didn't know that this was true, so now I have to change what I was planning to do. He's known it all from the very beginning. This is why he can set forth a plan. This is why our plans so frequently change. Quick illustration, we were going to go to the pumpkin patch a week or two ago. We received some information that many more people weren't going to be able to go, so we changed it. Right? This is not something that God does, is changing his plans. He decrees these things, he plans these things, and this is the outworking of it all. Again, before the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain. It's not as if God was looking upon seeing the actions of man and said, hey, Pilate, you're doing this. Um, the, the Romans are doing this. The Jews are doing this. Caiaphas is doing all this. So now is going to be a perfect time. No, it was foreordained. God had this plan from the very beginning. Paul is certain that God who began this work would bring it to completion. And this is why we can have great confidence and joy and hope in knowing our salvation is eternal. It is secure. It is full. It does not it is not lost. This is what we saw um, last week in John chapter 6, that all the, the Father has given me, I will lose none, right? Christ has lost none that the Father has given him. He will raise them up on the last day. This is sure. This absolutely is going to happen. So if you have been saved, if you are a Christian, 
truly, genuinely take great hope in these things. God will bring these things to completion. And there's confidence because it is not us who brings them to completion. He is the one who is doing the work. He is the one who began salvation. He is bringing it to completion. But you know the best part is? He's also doing the whole middle gap too. It's not as if he says, hey, I'll start it and finish it, but you're on your own for the middle. This is why upon salvation we receive the Holy Spirit to sanctify the believer, to grow in these things. Every step of the way, the indwelling of the Spirit leading us along. It is not as if God has set the earth in motion and said, okay, I'll be back when it's all done. He is intimately involved in the affairs of men. He is aware of what is going on. And again, he remains involved in these things. Now we're going to look at two different passages here in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Here in Romans 5, verse 10, Paul makes this truth abundantly clear, as he will later here in Romans 8. We're just going to start back up in verse 8, because I really like verse 8. But God commandeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. How much more, as a son of God, as a child of God, having received salvation, how much more will you be kept and secured and made safe by his life? He is the one who sent forth his Son, a propitiation for our sins, while we are absolutely enemies of God. It is through his death that we are saved, but how much more will we be kept by his life? These are the things that should remove a tremendous burden for anyone here that says, well, I have to be very, very careful of all that I do because, because I believe that I could lose my salvation, that even though I, I was a Christian, I believed upon Christ and I know that I am saved, well, now I don't know and I can simply I can be removed from it. The understanding, this belief that you can lose your salvation, which is one that I absolutely grew up in the first 18, 19 years of my life. How burdensome that is to always be constantly wondering, well, I know I've believed upon Christ for salvation, but I don't know about that today. Well, what if I did this? Am I still saved or am I... Can you imagine living a life that way? Some of you possibly do. It is an incredible weighty burden that we are not to carry because it is not our work that brought us to salvation. It is not our work that sustains salvation or brings it to completion. By his death we are saved, and by his life we will be kept. And then in verse 11, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Never forget that it was his work, his blood, his body on the cross as the atonement for our sins was not ours. This is why the Christian rejoices. Because it should have been us. It should have been our body. It should have been our blood. But because of his grace and his love and his mercy, the Father sent forth the Son. And now look at Romans chapter 8. Again, another passage that every couple days we would all be wise to remind ourselves of. 
Romans 8, we'll start in verse 28 and go all the way down through the end of the chapter and we're nearing completion. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not be with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There, there is nothing, nothing meaning nothing, that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, as he closes with there at the end of the chapter. What can separate us from it? Nothing can. No one can. He is going to bring to completion what it is that he has started. So this is what Paul writes to the Philippians, this incredible joy, the rejoicing in this salvation, because, hey, if you have received it, if it has begun, it will be completed. And guess what? Today, it may not absolutely feel like that. Today, you may have come in today with a struggle saying, man, I'm really, really struggling. Well, guess what? Rest assured and rejoice in the hope that it will be brought to completion. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is going to happen. This is why we believe who, in who we believe in, because he is the one who is bringing all of these things about. He has the power to do so, and he is completely sure in his promises. This is the thing that we see all the way back in Genesis, in 12, and 15, and 17, and 22, all of these things of God intimately working with Abraham. And when I say working with Abraham, what I mean is putting him to sleep so that he can do what he wanted to do. And the, the covenant enactment ceremony that takes place with Abraham, God comes before him and he sees Abraham and says, okay, I don't need you in this for my everlasting covenant. I'm going to cause a great sleep to come upon you. So Abraham zonked out. He's asleep. Has no clue what's going on. Which I'm sure was a wonderful, incredible sleep that some of us are praying for today. I'll oh, see you guys ran on that one. There you go. 
And he comes down and he, he makes these promises, these everlasting covenants with his people, uh, with Abraham and the outworking of those things that we see all throughout biblical history. He, he swears by himself, having no one greater to swear by. He performs the covenant enactment ceremony there where he passes through the fire. He has cut up the sacrifice. He has performed these things so that he will be bound by the, the curse of the covenant if it is broken. Did God break any part of his covenant? Absolutely not. But who does? We do. The curse of the covenant being a sacrifice, that sacrifice being Christ on the cross. Cursed is any man that hangs on a tree. All of these things directly interwoven from the very beginning in Genesis all the way throughout to Revelation. He will complete what he has started. And this started far beyond what we understand it to be currently. And so here we see this eager anticipation of the things to come, this conversation that Paul is writing here, confident of these things, that since it has begun, he will bring it to completion. It will be performed until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the return of Christ and the judgment and the rejoicing that the Christian will have and the judgment upon all unrighteousness and ungodliness. We understand he's setting the scene here from look forward to the day that Christ will return. And how many of you this morning eagerly anticipate and await the day of Christ's return? Absolutely, because I have spoken with nearly every single one of you about something very, very similar. This is the anticipation that the Christian has. It is not, I look forward, uh, I look forward to the day of my death because then I will just be not tired anymore. There's no true hope in those things. But there's hope in the end because we understand what is going to be brought about. Again, in the Sunday school, we looked at this and eagerly anticipating the day we can look upon the face of God. We look upon Him in all of His glory and we worship Him and we praise Him for all of eternity. That is our prize. It is not a house. It is not streets with gold. It is not all of these extra things. It is simply him. He is the treasure. He is the prize. If he is not, I would greatly encourage some reflection on priorities. He is the prize. He is the true treasure that we forsake everything for so that we can have him and him alone. Everything else is purely extra. So he's looking forward. He is rejoicing because of the certainty of the things to come. Anticipation of things which come. It's easy. I mean, think about a child preparing for Christmas, right? The joy of the anticipation of Christmas can often be almost better than Christmas for the kid. But man, the anticipation, the joy that we have for what we are going and looking forward to will absolutely pale in comparison to the reality. It is far greater than a kid looking forward to Christmas so much and then saying, well, Christmas was okay. I didn't get everything I wanted. We will receive far more than we ever knew that we wanted. We will have nothing to want. There will be, we will want for nothing. We will not be desiring anything else. And so he, he writes these things to encourage them. And again, in John 6, Christ saying that he will lose none that the Father has given him. In John 10, we see we are in the hands of the good shepherd, a shepherd who never loses his sheep. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, a foundation which cannot be broken. 
These are truths that are absolutely critical for the joy and for the hope. 1 Peter 1, an inheritance which will never fade away. Incorruptible. There's no moths up there. It's not that dusty old attic that we never want to clean or the crawl space that we send other people into. These are the things that we look forward to because it is safe. It is secure because of who holds them. And we eagerly anticipate that day being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has started it, he is going to complete it, and he is bringing it all along the way. This is why there should be no great burden in salvation. There should be no great burden when sharing the gospel, because it is salvation being a work of God. This is why, though we share the gospel with a person who does not believe and who does reject, we do not come away burdened as if we ourselves have failed. We have done what we have been commanded to do. To shed the seed. Shed the seed. That's the second time today I'm in it. Yeah. Right? It's to spread it. It's not, our job is not to bring a person to salvation. And witnessing and evangelizing with a person that you have spent years and years and years with you have a burden for the soul of that person, but you do not come away saying, I am the reason that person never received Christ. Salvation is a work of God. It should not be a burden in evangelism. It should be a great joy that we have. It should be a joyful thing, not a burdensome thing. And in a final note of application, we can look here now at the church. You can look both locally, we can look um, statewide, or we can even extend it out globally, and we can say, man, I see things in this church that I don't like. I, I, they don't do this enough. We don't do this. Um, that church says this, and that's not good. They don't do this. And we can grow discontent with the church as a whole, whether locally, whether statewide, whether nationally, globally, all of these different cases. And we can be a little upset at times. We can be frustrated. And trust me, I am right there too hearing things that go on in many, many churches and being very discouraged by it. But then you have to return back to this truth of, okay, but he is going to bring it to completion. There's joy and hope because of what you know it will be in the end. Is the church perfect right now? Absolutely. And that's not even, we're going to go big church, go all over the world. Let's just look right here. This, this one, not perfect. We will be one day. The church will be one day. In all of these letters that Paul writes to churches, does he ever tell them, hey, even though you have all of these different issues going on, you should just abandon the church. You should just leave it because there's all these issues. Not one time does he say, flee from the church, leave the church. Even though God is, it's a good thing that God has given to you, you should just leave it because there's some issues. Never. He corrects them, he instructs them, he exhorts them, he encourages them, but there's never the call to absolutely abandon the church. Man, it's going to be a mess, right? Anything people are involved in, it's going to be a mess. That is why we rejoice that he who has begun it will bring it to completion. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So where do we hope, where do we find joy in the things that he is doing to bring it to completion, knowing the reality at the end? And each and every one of us anticipating the day of that reality, it being far greater than even the joy we have now of all those things being the reality, our faith becoming sight, all of these things, because we are persuaded of it, we are convinced, we are sure, and we are certain. It's not wishful thinking, saying, man, I really hope heaven's going to be good. 
I really hope that this glory of God is actually worth seeing. It will be absolutely awe-inspiring, absolutely dazzling, incredible, and wonderful. Paul says he's confident of these things, that God will bring it to completion because he has begun it. He always has, and he always will. So when circumstances change, circumstances kind of go down, happiness may be up and down, remember, the joy is far outside of the circumstance. Look forward to the reality that is to come. Let's pray.